0: widely recognized in Western cultures, but the people that are exploring the worlds of tea have experienced Taiwan tea, I would say, for the most part.
1: In Taiwan, every cup of tea is a rewarding adventure. And whatever your cup of tea may be, light and delicate, or rich and flavorful, you're certain to find it here. I'm Curious John, and I'll see you again next week.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, here's Shirley Lin with In The Spotlight.
0: Welcome to In The Spotlight. I'm Shirley Lin. And with me in the studio today is Alyssa Chu of Anchor Taiwan. And she's actually the founder and CEO of Anchor Taiwan. But let's uh, meet Alyssa first. Hi, Alyssa. Hello, Shirley. Yes, you are from Taiwan. You said you're from Tainan, actually. Yes,
3: born in Tainan.
0: Right, right. But then um,
3: you came up here to Taipei for high school? No, I first came up for elementary school and Uh I went to Hualien, actually spent quite a few years over there and came back to Taipei again for my senior high school.
0: Then actually you graduated in high school from Taipei. Then you went abroad to Canada. Yes. Yeah. Why did you choose Canada? I mean, you went to a local school here in Taipei. Yes, I did. And did a lot of classmates kind of also went abroad to study college or?
3: Not that many, actually. So at the time, it was more of a family decision. So I went to Canada. I first went to Vancouver for my undergrad and to Toronto. You mean your
0: parents moved with you to Canada? Uh, My mom. Oh. Yeah. Oh, yes. You know, we do have a lot of Taiwanese families where, you know, the mom, mostly it's the mom, who would then accompany their child and study abroad in, for college or, you know, a further education while the father kind of stays here mm-hmm. and uh, the breadwinner of the family kind of thing. Yeah, that's very common here in Taiwan. But anyway, then you went to Canada. I'm sure it was quite an eye-opener for you.
3: Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: your English was already very good then.
3: Not really. I remember the first class that I went, uh, I was so stressed out because it was a very intensive summer course and participation actually accounts for 20% of uh-huh. the grade. And I remember, you know, like being typically a straight A student, I was like, holy smokes, Like if I don't speak up in class, then automatically my maximum is 80%. And of course, you know, I couldn't really do that, but at the same time my English was not that great. So I remember every class before the class I would be so nervous about okay, what can I talk about today? And oh. I will like, rehearse over and over and over again and sometimes I was still too nervous to, to really say anything in class. So yeah, it was it was quite it was kinda like um, almost like traumatic experience for me in the beginning. Um, you know, it
0: seems like um you were probably an A student in high school. Because you look, it seems like you have very high expectations of yourself.
3: I do work hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
0: all right, all right. Well, um, I heard that your major was economics um, yes. in college in Canada, which was same here, mm-hmm. but um, you actually fell in love with it.
3: Yeah, I feel like I was fascinated when I discovered. This whole new world, because especially when I first studied Econ 101 and 102, by moving two curves, you know, like <laughs> demand and supply, you can explain so many different things in the world. and I can I, yeah. I remember
0: demand and supply, but that's about <laughs> it.
3: But then a lot of that, I think, uh, fundamentally is about human's decision. I think it's a lot about psychology, about rationality of human beings. And I think ultimately that's why I'm so fascinated about economics. Ah,
0: it crosses many different disciplines. Yeah. Huh, I never saw it that way. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so then you went on for master's,
3: did yes. you? Yes.
2: Uh,
0: in the same field? Related. Or so
3: I did a joint sort of like program with MBA with a specialization in finance and a master in economics.
0: You told me that you actually were thinking about law. Yes, yeah Yeah. but then because you know of the different i don't know educational system and policies that you didn't you weren't able to get into that directly from being a a foreign student but anyway i guess you must be glad that it didn't turn out that way although are you still thinking about aiming for a law degree sometime later in your life
3: i'm not sure you know like uh, i guess you never say never to life you never know I am quite happy that I ended up kind of like studying economics. However, I always still feel like I have this embedded sort of like sense of justice in me. <laughs> and mm. I, again, I think law is something fascinating. Uh, however, I do I do feel very thankful with what I have got so far. Yeah.
0: So you have that sense of like being fair about everything, right? Yes. Like. The first job though that you got. Which I saw, I, you know, when I first heard about it, it's just amazing. You actually, the first job was on the trading floor. Yes. <laughs> you know, I can only call that intense. I could never find myself in that position because I think that would be so, so nerve-wracking. Maybe it's something I don't know about, you know, the job itself. So mm. is it as nerve-wracking as everybody else sees it
3: as it is? It was indeed quite intense. And you have to remember, I was this immigrant kid, female. Minority and on the trading floor with majority of white dudes, essentially. Yeah, uh, that was in, in in Toronto. But I think initially I got in maybe sort of because of this ignorance, because you know, like I didn't really know that much about this whole Wall Street world. I was just you know in love with economics and I just loved what I did. So I went in, I got this job, and it was quite a learning curve for me. So I definitely have learned a lot about the dark side of um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, of the world uh-huh. and learn a lot about myself as well. Yeah. yeah. How long did you
0: do that job?
3: I was over there. So it was a co-op. co-op. So I was there for about six months for my first sort of like experience on the trading floor. And I had to um, go back to school to finish my master's degree during which I got an offer to move to Hong Kong by JP Morgan and that brought me back to Asia. Oh, okay. Um, can you remind me what's J.P. Morgan? Well, what kind yeah. of company oh, is that? J.P. Morgan is one of the biggest investment banks in the world. Right. And um, yeah, they also have corporate banking, retail bankings, a multinational company.
0: All right. You know, I, 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 can't, I, I need to clear this. Um, talking back on being, um, you know, on the trading floor. For those of us who are outsiders, we always think that it has to do with speed, mm. being quick. Yeah. Otherwise, you lose big opportunities, lose like tons of money or something like that. Mm-hmm. Is that really? Uh, so it can
3: be true, actually. Uh, even though I think it's a lot about speed, but it's also about making the judgments correctly. Oh so gosh! It's How can you
0: <laughs> watching the time and yet you have to make try to make the best judgment? That's that's inhumane.
3: Well, um, it's part of the training. And I think that's also why, even till now, I tend to act and work, you know, like very Very fast. fast. Yeah, because I think a lot of that probably had something to do with the training back then. Because for us, every split second, it can be millions of dollars. I know. Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay. Well, people like you need to forgive me because I'm a slow person.
3: (laughs) (laughs) I try to get slower. I try to basically have the balance.
0: Yeah, I mean, you should slow down and enjoy life, right? Mm. No, I'm sure you can still enjoy life and be fast person. <laughs> but anyway. Okay, so um so you came back to Taiwan. Yeah. And you've been back in Taiwan for how long now?
3: Now, I pretty much started spending more and more time in Taiwan since I started Anchor Taiwan. All so, right. So, yeah, in between, I was in Hong Kong for quite many years. And afterwards, I went traveling around the world, moved myself to Silicon Valley. Till now, I still have a base in San Francisco. But increasingly, I am moving my focus back to Taiwan.
0: Okay, so you say you travel a lot around the world, but it's for work or is it for leisure? Both both. Yeah. You first started Anchor Taiwan in Taiwan though, and then you have your branch office in San Francisco?
3: No, I no. I first started Anchor Taiwan. It's kind of hard to define where, frankly. At the time, I had my base in San Francisco, and I went came back to Taiwan for Christmas, and pretty much originally I was going to go back to San Francisco after New Year, but I saw this opportunity and th- there's this drive and motivation in me to do something related to taiwan so i thought okay i should probably do something about this um essentially the idea of anchor taiwan so that's what i did i extended my stay in taiwan i didn't go back after new year i essentially stayed here till about valentine's day Uh and and then i went back oh okay so but at the time i still was mainly based in san francisco
1: You're listening to In The Spotlight with Shirley Lin.
0: Wait, I feel like we kind of made a big jump from you were working for JP Morgan and then you got the opportunity to, to be transferred to Taiwan. How you went from working for a company to being your own, bo- your own boss? We kind of made a big jump there. <laughs> how, how did that happen? I'm missing something here. Yeah,
3: so I started my career in Hong Kong with JP Morgan. And afterwards, I joined a UK hedge fund as a trader and a portfolio manager, basically overlooking convertible bond strategies for pan-Asia. But after several years, I started feeling that, you know, like, although on the surface, it seems like I have got a lot of things that people are looking for, but I was still searching for that sense of purpose. So in 2013, finally, I had enough courage to pull the trigger to leave my job. And so the first thing that I did was I went traveling around the world. I really wanted to explore to find out, what I want, and I think the first thing is to educate myself about the world and myself, and then one thing after another, I brought myself to Silicon Valley, mm-hmm. and e- eventually I relocated myself there.
0: Okay, how long were you traveling around? Pretty much, o- almost uh, over a
3: year, actually,
0: over a year. Yeah. How did you How did you plan your itinerary? Uh, because I you were on your own, <laughs> right?
3: <laughs> Mostly on my own. I had always been a big traveler, even when I was still working full-time. So I had been to a lot of places in the world. So during Great. that one year, I thought, okay, I should go to places where it's harder to explore when I'm working full-time. Because at the time, I didn't know that I would end up starting my own company. I thought, mm. you know, like maybe after some time, I'll go back and have another full-time job. Mm. So... I mapped out oh, three areas that I wanted to explore that typically would be harder for people who have limited holiday time and those are the Middle East, Latin mm-hmm. America, Eastern Europe. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's what I did. So each time I will go out for a big chunk like maybe like in between 1 to 3 months of intensive so like traveling to these major areas and then come back to my base Hong Kong again.
0: Wow, you must be great at planning, you know, vacation trips for anybody who doesn't have a clue. <laughs> I still can't imagine. I mean, just taking your time, enjoying every place, every destination that you come to and really absorbing and sinking in on the culture and everything. Each country you spend like what, how how long? I it mean? depends,
3: uh from Depends. Yeah, a couple of days to even like half a month, one month.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And meeting
3: people there. Yeah, making meeting friends. a lot of people at the time. But I thought, you're a woman. You're yeah? traveling all by yourself. <laughs> You're so brave. Well, you know, know, sometimes, sometimes, yeah, there are things that you have to watch out. But sometimes that's also an advantage because it's it's easier to build connections with the locals. They don't see you as a threat. So it's easier, especially for me at the time. My goal is to have a documentary photography story for each country that I visit. So, yeah, that makes actually it's it's easy for me to build that relationship with the people. All right.
0: You grew up with. Uh, this hobby photography mm-hmm. uh-huh. and so that, that is one of the well part of the reason why you went traveling is because you love photography so much no no
3: mm, um it's a an added bonus uh, and yeah. yeah
0: you just said you were you were going to make a documentary right photography
3: yeah at the time for each country that i went visiting i wanted to Record As part of the reason and the drive to deepen my connections and my experience with that country, I gave myself a goal. I wanted to have a documentary story of each country that I visited. So, yeah, either I have some knowledge about this country already, about stories that I want to tell. Or very often, I will land in a new city and I will start talking to local people to discover stories that move me to meet people that I might want to highlight through my pictures. Right. Okay, so you were
0: taking pictures. So tons of pictures. I'm sure you still have them in stock. That, that is amazing. So you were like interviewing these people.
3: Yeah, interviewing and also very often, maybe in the beginning, uh, interviewing them, understanding their life, their stories. But very often, once I start documenting, then I want to be almost invisible. I want to be just basically following them. I want to really just record their life. So Mm -hmm. yeah, when I am in action, then very often I'm just silent. I'm in the background. I want them to just kind of like ignore me and do their own things.
0: That is amazing. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. It's exciting and such, you know, you collected a whole lot of all these beautiful memories mm. from all these travels and all these people. Yeah. Obviously, you had to look for people who could speak English.
3: Yeah, or you, <laughs> or you rely on body you, language or interpreters. Oh. We call them fixers um, in the photography world. You brought along some people with you? No. No. So you just found some local. Yeah, it's essentially almost like being a founder, you have to hustle. You have to be resourceful. You have to find your way around.
0: In next week's In the Spotlight, Elisa Chu will talk about what exactly is Anchor Taiwan. For In the Spotlight, I'm Shirley Lin.
2: Classic Shorts Stories from Chinese History and Literature.
4: Hello and welcome to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie So. Today we're going to read two famous poems of the Tang Dynasty poet Du Fu. He was one of the most prominent poets of the Tang Dynasty and had a big influence on Chinese and Japanese literary culture. Nearly 1,500 poems written by him have been preserved, and today's two poems are his odes to two famous artists of the time. They're both included in the 300 Tang poem anthology. This one's called A Drawing of a Horse by General Cao at Secretary Wei Feng's house. Throughout this dynasty no one had painted horses like the Master Spirit, Prince Chiang and then to General Cao through his thirty years of fame the world's gaze turned for royal steeds. He painted the late Emperor's a luminous white horse; for ten days the thunder flew over Dragon Lake, and a pink agate plate was sent him from the palace. The talk of the court ladies, the marvel of all eyes. The general danced, receiving it in his honored home. After this rare gift, followed rapidly fine silks from many of the nobles, requesting that his art lend a new luster to their screens. First came the curly-maned horse of Emperor Taizong. Then for the Guo's, a lion-spotted horse. But now in this painting I see two horses, a sobering sight for whosoever knew them. They are war horses, either could face ten thousand. They make the white silk stretch away into a vast desert, and the seven others with them are almost as noble. Mist and snow are moving across a cold sky and hooves are cleaving snowdrifts under great trees. With here a group of officers and there a group of servants, see how these nine horses all vie with one another. The high, clear glance, the deep, firm breath. Who understands distinction? Who really cares for art? You, Wei Feng, have followed Cao. Zidong preceded him. I remember when the late Emperor came toward his summer palace. The procession in green feathered rows swept from the eastern sky. Thirty thousand horses, prancing, galloping, fashioned, every one of them, like the horses in this picture. But now the Imperial ghost receives secret jade from the river god, for the Emperor hunts crocodiles no longer by the streams. Where you see his great gold tomb, you may hear among the pines, a bird grieving in the wind, that the emperor's horses are gone. And here is Du Fu's poem about a song of a painting to General Tao. O general descended from Wei's Emperor Wu, you are nobler now than when a noble, conquerors and their valor perish. But masters of beauty live forever. With your brushwork learned from Lady Wei, and second only to Wang Xizhi's, faithful to your art, you know no age. Letting wealth and fame drift by light clouds, In the years of Kaiyuan you were much with the Emperor, Accompanying him, often to the court of the south wind, When the spirit left great statesmen on walls of the Hall of Fame. The point of your brush preserved their living faces. You crowned all the premiers with cornets of office. You fitted all commanders with arrows at their girdles. You made the founders of this dynasty with every hair alive seemed to be just back from the fierceness of a battle. The late emperor had a horse, known as Jade Flower, whom artists had copied in various poses. They led him one day to the red marble stairs, with his eyes toward the palace in the deepening air. Then General commanded to proceed with your work. You centered all your being on a piece of silk, And later, when your dragon horse, born of the sky, had banished earthly horses for ten thousand generations, there was one jade flower standing on the dais, and another by the steps, and they marveled at each other. The emperor rewarded you with smiles and with gifts, while officers and men of the stud hung about and stared. Gan, your follower, has likewise grown proficient, at representing horses in all their attitudes, but picturing the flesh, he fails to draw the bone, so that even the finest are deprived of their spirit. You, beyond the mere skill, use your art divinely and express not only horses, but the life of a good man. Yet here you are wandering in a world of disorder and sketching from time to time Some petty passerby. People note your case with the whites of their eyes. There's nobody pure. There's nobody poor. Read in the records from earliest times how hard it is to be a great artist. Thanks for tuning in to Classic Shorts. I'm Natalie Sell.
2: You're listening to News Playlist. We've queued up some of the most interesting reports for you, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International.
5: Welcome to News Playlist. I'm Paula Chow, the program host. Today I'm going to feature some typhoon-related stories. Taiwan, being an island in the subtropics, is affected by an average of four to five typhoons every year, usually in the summer and autumn. But what do typhoons, hurricanes, and cyclones have in common? Let's hear from Ali So.
4: Okay, typhoons, hurricanes, and cyclones are actually the same thing. They are rotating tropical storms with two ingredients. Energy from warm water and winds of at least 118 kilometers per hour. Now they have different names according to the area of the world they are in. They all are formed near the equator where the waters are very warm. Now, Taiwan's typhoon season is from June to October, and we're currently in peak season. Now, from 1911 to 2018, Taiwan had 366 typhoons with about three to four a year. Taiwan divides typhoons into three categories. A tropical storm has winds from 62 to 117 kilometers per hour, a moderate typhoon has winds of 118 to 183, and an intense one has winds of at least 184 kilometers per hour. Now, Typhoons can wreak havoc on roads, crops, and lives, but they can also bring much-needed rains.
5: Because typhoons bring strong winds and heavy rain, the government sometimes gives the public a day off work and school to ensure their safety. This is known as a Typhoon Day. In late September, schools and offices were closed when Typhoon Mitag hit Taiwan. But the typhoon also brought stormy reactions from some local parents over the issue of school closings.
1: Typhoon Mittag is kicking up violent gusts and high waves along Taiwan's Pacific coast. Fishermen, shopkeepers, and construction workers are playing it safe, securing whatever large objects they can. With dangerous conditions expected through Monday, it's probably not surprising that schools are being careful too. But the issue of school closings has unleashed a different kind of storm, this one of the public relations variety. In three areas of Taidong County, Monday looked at first like a normal school day. But at 10 a.m., officials announced that schools would be closing. Many parents were at work, and some were not immediately reachable, leaving teachers to show further students' home one by one. Fortunately, one teacher says, everyone in their area lives in the same village, so it wasn't too much trouble. Those parents who did come to pick up their children were far from impressed by the decision to cancel classes partway through the day. They say with a typhoon nearby, schools shouldn't have opened at all. But Taidong County officials say there's not much they could have done differently. Their decisions have to follow regulations issued by the central government. John Van Trieste, RTI News.
5: In mid-September, a Hualien fisherman got a lucky catch after a typhoon swept past. Rare as this haul may be, it's likely that catches of this size are only going to become rarer as environmental conditions change.
1: Fishermen in Hualien, on Taiwan's Pacific coast, are used to big catches after typhoons blow past. But a giant eel caught in the area last Saturday came as a surprise, even to the experienced fishermen who caught it. The eel measures 145 centimeters and weighs in at close to 25 kilograms. The fisherman who caught the eel says it's been around 10 years since he last caught an eel of comparable size. He says he has not yet decided what to do with the eel. He may continue to raise it or give it to someone else. However, it seems unlikely that he will have the chance to catch many more eels of this size. The particular species is not protected under the law, and as habitats and conditions change along this stretch of coast, the number that reach such gigantic proportions is likely to drop. John Van Trieste, RTI News.
2: This is News Playlist, a weekly rundown of some of the most interesting news reports brought to you by RTI. Watch along on YouTube if you like, or close your eyes and enjoy these stories by way of sound.
5: Taiwan's fertile soils produce excellent fruit, and Taiwan's farmers take pride in the quality of the fruit they are able to grow. But in addition to bugs and diseases, fruit farmers here share one big enemy in common, typhoons. In early August, as Typhoon Lakima bore down on Taiwan, farmers raced to show up their trees and rescue what fruit they could.
1: For most people in Taiwan, typhoons are just a regular part of life that passes without much notice. For farmers though, it's a different story. As Typhoon Lakima approached Taiwan this week, Fruit farmers in Union County got to work, using pipes and rope to secure their trees in place as best they could. Pomelo farmers were especially worried. The citrus fruit is at its most popular around the upcoming mid-autumn festival, and typhoons have been known to devastate entire crops. Though many pomelos have yet to ripen, some farmers started harvesting anyway, hoping to salvage what they could. The county's banana farmers were also on edge. Before the storm even arrived, strong winds had already blown over some trees, and farmers took to covering their bananas in bags for protection. Lakima is only the first typhoon to impact Taiwan this season, and so there's a chance that this is not the last storm farmers will have to weather this year. John Ventriest, RTI News.
5: And on August 9th, a lot of people in northern Taiwan got the day off work and school due to an approaching typhoon. But when the typhoon failed to deliver Many people venture out of their homes, giving local businesses a nice boost.
6: Local governments in northern Taiwan canceled work and classes as severe typhoon Lakima approached. But as the day drew on, the wind and rain was not as heavy as expected. Many people took advantage of the off day and headed out to have some fun. This shrimp fishing operator says he's seen a 30 percent increase in business. Some people skipped the middleman and went fishing outdoors. Out in urban areas, movie theaters were jam-packed since early morning. This local said he couldn't make it back to Taipei due to the typhoon, so he might as well stay and enjoy the time off. Supermarkets and big box retailers were also visited by large crowds. Many people stocked up on sacrificial offerings for a ghost festival happening later on in the month. This store manager tells us that the holiday has double expected business on a typical Friday. Typhoon Lekima may have been enough to keep people out of work and school, but it wasn't enough to keep them at home. Leslie Liao, RTI News.
5: And the government says... Those who refused to evacuate coastal areas during typhoons could face a hefty fine. Under the Disaster Prevention and Protection Act, violators could be fined up to 250,000 Taiwan dollars or about 8,300 US dollars. A coastal patrol guard asked a fisherman to get off his boat on Monday after sea and land warnings for typhoon Mitak were issued. He responded to the call to evacuate, but not everyone was cooperative. Two other fishermen didn't care at all, saying there was nothing to be afraid of. At a harbor in western Miaoli County, a woman braced the strong winds just to take photos of the large waves there. It's too dangerous, shouted the guard. In Zhanghua County, people kept fishing, too, despite the warnings. Coast Guard official Wang Jieming said they had persuaded 340 people and 82 cars to evacuate. Those who don't evacuate during typhoons could face a hefty fine. Taiwanese soldiers are often mobilized to help rescue work in the wake of a typhoon. Recently, soldiers have showcased their newest rain gear during their latest disaster relief mission after Typhoon Bailu passed through Taiwan.
2: Army soldiers are busy
1: carrying equipment for their disaster relief mission after Typhoon Bailu hit Taiwan this past weekend. All the soldiers and officers are wearing the newest ring gear with digitally mapped camouflage. The design offers more than a new look. An officer from logistics department said the new ring gear achieves a Level 4 rainproof certification while still being breathable and comfortable to wear. The new design also allows the wearer to tuck in its many accessories, including a hat and pouches.
4: Soldiers have said that in the past, ring
1: gear tended to stick on their skin due to poor breathability. The new high-tech design has proven to be much more comfortable.
5: And that's all we have for this week's edition of News Playlist, in which we introduced some typhoon-related stories. I hope you have enjoyed listening to our show today. For any comments or suggestions, you may write to rti at rti.org.tw for Radio Taiwan International. I'm Paula Chow. Bye-bye.
6: listening to Radio Taiwan International. Check out our website at English.rti.org.tw. Morning, the Holiday program is very popular. Uh, it's very
7: popular with uh, young Taiwanese people, I think. We have more than 20,000 young Taiwanese people every year. We have um, now more than 200,000 visitors from Taiwan to Australia
6: every year. Hello and welcome to this week's Online brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong. Mr. Gary Cohen, the representative of Australian Office Taiwan, said the number of Taiwanese tourists to Australia has increased over the last few years. More than 300,000 Taiwanese travel to Australia every year. Many Taiwanese also travel to Queensland and Keynes. Keynes is the number one base for far north Queensland and the Great Barrier and Wet Tropics World Heritage Site. In the meantime, Working Holiday Maker or WHM program makes Australia the number one destination for Taiwanese who are interested in holiday work scheme. To find out more we are joined today all the way from Australia by Mr. Gary Cohen the representative of Australian office Taiwan Mr Gary Cohen yep. for the last three years Taiwanese tourists to Queensland have increased and the visit to Keynes of course is no exception we know that more than eighty thousand Taiwanese visit Queensland what does Keynes have to offer
7: yeah look Queens is famous really for two big things. One is the Great Barrier Reef. It's it's the gateway to the Great Barrier Reef, um, and it's also the gateway to the rainforests. Um, the Great Old Rainforest is the game tree. Both of these are world heritage sites. So it's uh, it's the entry to some tremendous nature, um, as well as that there are beaches, islands. Um, there's uh, tremendous seafood to enjoy and also uh, the um, connection of the indigenous people uh, in the region is, is very strong and, and culturally interesting. So yeah, there's a lot to offer in Cairns.
6: Uh, yes, we'll get to the indigenous part later on. We know that Cairns is the number one base for far north Queensland and the Great Barrier and Wet Tropics the Wet Tropics is the World Heritage Site that consists of around 8,940 square kilometres wet tropical forests. Could you tell us how travellers can plan their visit to Canes, the Great Barrier Reef, and even wet tropics?
7: Yeah, sure. Well, look, um, on the tropics, the Wet Tropics, uh, the Great Barrier Reef is the, the world's biggest coral reef system. It really is one of the seven wonders of the natural world. Um, You can see the Great Barrier Reefs from space. Um, And the the whole Marine National Park is uh, uh, some 3,000 kilometres long. So uh, there's a lot of diving, snorkelling, kayaking. um, uh, You can view the reefs on a glass-bottomed boat, so you can look through the bottom of the boat. You can, you can fly over it. Um, so there's some terrific ways to, to explore it. Um, also, I should say, um, as I mentioned, that uh, near terms is uh, the Baintree rainforest, another and rainforest. Now, the Baintree is um, part of a great ancient forest that once covered a lot of... Uh, Australia and Australia, Antarctica in a, in a great forest um, of Gondwana. So, uh, some of the trees, species, the plant species, and even the animal um, species are extremely old, uh, you know, hundreds of million, you know, more than 100 million years old, some of them. So, there really is a lot to experience. We have one very interesting animal called a, a tree kangaroo. So, this is a kangaroo. A, a marsupial of Australia, but because there are no monkeys in Australia, this kangaroo really lived lives in trees. So it's one example of the the incredible uh fauna wildlife that you can see near Cairns Now in terms of getting there, it's um, you know you can fly to Cairns, There's uh, like an an air force, fly to Cairns, and then basically within a fairly convenient dates of our you can explore a lot of these uh poses. So I think plans is a is a good place and a and a good way to, to, to plan a trip as a the central point in the trip.
6: So you can see like different species of animals and plants and yet if you like uh snorkeling or diving you can do that as well. Exactly. And now, could you also elaborate, because we know that the the whole idea, for example, like snorkeling, diving, or the visit to the tropical forests, and so on and so forth, we do hope to attract the younger people from Taiwan to visit. Now, could you elaborate on these changes between Taiwan and Australia? Uh, First, we start with the WHM, which is the Working Holiday Maker Program. Yes,
7: sure. Well, the the Working Holiday Maker Program is is very popular. Uh, it's very popular with uh, young Taiwanese people. I think we have more than twenty thousand young Taiwanese people every year uh, in Australia um, taking advantage of that scheme. And what it means is that, of course, they can see Australia. They can uh, explore, you know, experiences like the one in terms of understanding the Great Valley of Reef and the uh, rainforest uh, and other things, but they can also uh, find work to support themselves while yeah, they're headed on. And, um, you know, they can do that for um, one year or two years or even up to three years if they do the right kind of work. So, uh, really, the, the rules are that um, uh, you need to be a young Taiwanese person between the age of 18 and 30 years old. Um, and of course, as well as uh, using it as an opportunity to um, to see Australia, it's also a good way to uh, improve um, your English. Uh, it can be an opportunity to undertake short-term study as well, practical study often. And then also gain useful related which all of which is a helpful and um, eventually come back to
6: Taiwan. So, around 20,000 people um, joined this holiday work scheme. Now, start. You're listening to Underline, brought to you by Radio Taiwan International. I'm Carlson Wong, and today I'm joined on the phone all the way from Australia by Mr. Gary Cohen, the representative of Australian Office Taiwan. Starting this July, um, Mr. Gary Cohen, we know that young Taiwanese may stay for a third year. Now, what are the qualifications now?
7: Yeah, so look, um, the initial visa is for one year. um, And then uh, many many people choose to stay on for a second year. And now, since the middle of this year, um, since July, working holiday makers can apply for a third year. Um, now, there are some kind of criteria, and qualifications. Um, they need to have done certain kinds of work in a rural area for so, um, uh, three months during the, the first year. And that can include, um, you know, looking after uh, plants or animals, so work on farms. It might be packing fruit or picking fruit. Uh, it might be trimming trees. Uh, might be fishing, it might be tree farming um, mining and construction or other areas which uh, which uh, qualify. Now for the, for the third year um, is um, applicants, these um, young people also need to have done six months of that kind of work at some stage during the second year. So you know there's two qualifications. So these uh, are an I also should say yes.
6: Sorry. So these are the qualifications they need.
7: Yeah, those are the qualifications. That's right. That they they have to have worked in those different fields that I described. I should say that um, you know we're very clear in Australia that if, if you know a young Taiwanese comes and works here, yeah, that they are entitled to the same pay and the same conditions as Australian workers. You know, with the want them to know that they have the same rights as Australian workers and they should know that before they come and before they accept that work. Um, And uh, there's information available, including from what we call our Fair Work Ombudsman um, on the website. Uh, And also, um, you know, there's language resource available in um, Chinese language, so people can understand clearly uh, the rights that they're entitled to.
6: Mm-hmm. So it's available in Mandarin Chinese, and so they can easily yes. access the website, and they can find out more information on how to apply for Working Holiday Maker Program.
7: Yes, that's, that's correct.
6: With the WHM program and also with the visitors to Australia, has the number of tourists to Australia increased? I mean, on the part of Taiwan.
7: Yes, it has. We have um, now more than two hundred thousand visitors from Taiwan to Australia every year. So we're very pleased at the growth. It's been quite solid growth. Um, some of those, of course, are. Uh, working holiday makers, some of them are students, but a lot of them are other tourists or business travellers, or so people um, visiting family. We've done something to make that easier now. there are you know over 24 electric flights from Thailand from cities, so if you flights to different cities. Also, uh, it's easy when you uh, get to an Australian airport because Taiwanese passport holders now can use the smart boat system, so much quicker to the for Taiwanese visitors than it used to be. So we're, we're pleased that we've helped make it easier um, and uh, we're happily welcoming more Taiwanese visitors.
6: We know Taiwan and Australia have had uh, a lot of cooperation. First, can we talk about the cooperation in agriculture, Mr. Gary Cohen?
7: Uh, yes. Look, I can. Um, you know, just now, now, just now, I was visiting a, a banana research facility here in Queensland. Uh, they, they, a very good. Uh, agricultural research between Taiwan and Australia, and one area of that research has been into bananas and how we can um, help um, find bananas that are more resistant to disease. Uh, Bananas are important to both Australia and Taiwan, so this is one area among many where we are working together closely. Um, Another is in Leipzig, um, we know that Taiwan has some of the most delicious lychees in the world. And the Queensland Department of Agriculture and Fisheries is working with uh, the Taiwan Agricultural Research Institute um, to, on a project that will um, grow Taiwanese lychee varieties here in Australia. And eventually, when we find that that kind of... Uh, Larchy like plant that will thrive but will grow very, very well in Australia. We can um, expand that out, and eventually, maybe we can be um, exporting larchy up to one, but also up to uh, to new countries in Southeast Asia and beyond. So um, these are some of the research uh, areas where we're working together. Um, also, of course. Uh, there's uh, uh you know a, a healthy trade in agriculture between our two
6: was the first part of our interview with mr gary cohen the representative of australian office taiwan who joined us all the way from Keynes, australia do join us again next week as mr gary cohen will tell us more about the exchanges between taiwan and australia and that's it for this week's on the line brought to you by radio taiwan international i'm carlson wong thank you for listening i'll see you next week and goodbye